following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. One characteristic that all mankind shares, that every single human being, man, woman, child shares, is that they are known for something, or they have a reputation. Every single one of us in this room has, has a reputation of some sort. Now this reputation may be good and it may be bad. For instance, we can in our own in our own lives we can think of those who we know that may be that may be prone to lie. So when they tell us things, we are very wary to believe them. We think that because of what they've done in the past, it, we're, we're challenged with, with what they tell us here in the present. And those who have a good reputation, those who have been marked as trustworthy, we are very prone to, to seek their counsel or their advice and to, and to seek them out for things that we, that we are dealing with. But not only is is of the weight of a, care, of a reputation important for us as individuals. Because it encompasses everything that we are, everything that we do in our being. Right? Our, our reputation is, is the words that we say. Our reputation is the actions, the desires of our heart, the way we think. And not only does our reputation weigh upon us as individuals, but it even has greater weight if we claim to be a part of a community or claim to be... The, the child or the follower of someone else. We think of that particularly in our own Christian faith. Right? Our reputation is just not of us as an individual, but who we are as people. The, the words that we speak, how we act, has a direct effect on how people view Christ because they look at us as a follower of Christ. We see the converse and, and, and the shame of when pastors get caught up in scandals, especially those who are in, are in higher higher positions of, of not maybe not celebrity, but, but they are known by the public as pastors of, of the Christian faith and of Christ. And when they're caught up in scandal, how much does that mar Christ's name? Each one of us has a reputation. And if we were to ask your husbands or your wives or those who are close to you, what do you think they would say about you? What is it that you are known? Children, if we were to ask your parents, what is it that you are known for in the home? How would they answer? What is your reputation? Well, as we come to the end of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, that is essentially what Paul's doing. He's wrapping up a description of the Thessalonians. He has begun in the, in the, in the preceding verses praising and rejoicing that the power of the gospel, the spirit, was poured out upon Paul's work, Paul and his companions' work, among the Thessalonians. And even though they encountered great affliction, Paul and, his, and, and Silvanus and Timothy, and even though they had to leave this young church in affliction from, from the Jewish population who were seeking to drive them out, the spirit had grabbed hold of their lives. They had been given much joy and they had transformed lives. And so Paul is closing this section giving the rest of the report that he has heard of these people. Their reputation that has spread, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, which constitute the whole of 
of modern-day Greece. But even in the towns that Paul has gone to, he has heard of the reputation of these Thessalonian believers. But these Thessalonian believers were not just given any reputation. It was a godly reputation of the example of following Paul, and even greater, Paul saying they became imitators of the Lord himself. So as we look at this text, this is not just stuck in the past. Paul is not describing some ancient people that we cannot attain to, but he calls us all to this. And that just as the Thessalonians were marked by these things, we too are called to be marked. We as Christians to be marked by these things. So I think the main point of our text this, this evening is that the Christian is known for their faith in God and a transformed life. The Christian is known has the reputation for their faith in God and transformed life. And I'd like us to look at this in two points. Verse 8 is their faith in God, the Thessalonians' faith in God. And verses 9 and 10, the Thessalonians' transformed life. So if you look at me at verse 8, let's reread it. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we not, need not say anything. Paul begins by, by describing this new, this new group of believers. How they have, they have this new faith in a different deity. He's speaking primarily to, primarily to a Gentile audience. And so Paul is, is making this distinction that you were once, you had once chased after these idols. You had once gone after false gods, but now you have, you have shifted. You now have faith in God. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He, he describes how their faith has been made active. How their faith has transformed their desires. Now I want to look at faith in, in, in three ways. What is the nature of faith? What constitutes saving faith in Christ? It's one thing for us to just say, they came to faith in God, but what does that mean? What, is that, what does that practically mean that, and it looked like in their life? Well, the nature of faith is three things. First, it constitutes knowledge. Second, it constitutes assent or agreement with that knowledge. And thirdly, trust. Trust in that knowledge and and. and, and Tightly intertwined with trust is delight. Because we could ask, Paul had just described in verse 6 how they received joy in the Holy Spirit. Right? They had received forgiveness of sins. So we could ask the question, why didn't the Thessalonians repent earlier? Why, didn't, why had the Thessalonians taken until now to turn to God? Well, it's answered with our first point of the nature of faith. They did not know them. They did not know of God. They, they had the sense in their conscience of their being a God, but it wasn't until Paul came to them and was preaching the gospel that he, that he preached of the one true and living God, that he, that he was proclaiming the gospel of, of the need for repentance, the need of forgiveness of sin, and the salvation offered in Christ. This, this new group of believers in Thessalonica, as they heard the gospel, the knowledge of the gospel going out, the Holy Spirit was regenerating them. He was giving them understanding in these things. Not only did they hear, but they agreed with that knowledge. It's one thing to know something, and it's a totally different to agree with it. So not only was the Spirit working in them to, to illuminate their eyes to the knowledge of the gospel, but also he was, he was making them able to believe it, 
to accept it, that they were sinners, that they indeed needed a Savior, that all these false idols that they had been worshiping now appear to them as false and worthless. But not only that, their faith did not only constitute knowledge and agreement with such knowledge, but was trust in God. Again, the Holy Spirit working in them. Not only had them agree, not only allowed them to agree with the proclamation of the gospel, the knowledge of the gospel, but they trusted in the gospel. Because not only did they see their need for a savior, but as Paul preached salvation and, and redemption in Christ, they then put their, their trust and faith in that redemption and in that salvation, in that once for all atoning work of Christ upon the cross, and they delighted in it. They rested in that saving knowledge that if they truly repented of their sin, God would forgive them. God would bring them into his house and welcome them as his sons and his daughters. The nature of their faith was knowledge, agreement with that knowledge, and trust and delight in that knowledge. That constitutes saving faith. And so as, we, as we're here tonight, we have, need to ask ourselves the question, is that our faith? Is that your faith? Because it's one thing to have a knowledge of something. We can say we have a knowledge of evolution. But that does not mean we agree with it. So it's one thing to say, I believe in the gospel. I believe, I, I have a knowledge, excuse me, I have a knowledge of the gospel. How many in our own day and age and who we interact with would say, yes, I know the name of Jesus. I know who he is. And they may even go the step further of agreeing that they are a sinner. How many people have we come encountered with in the, in, the, in the community outreach who would acknowledge they're a sinner, who would acknowledge that they need a Savior, but yet always fall back on the fact that, oh, but I have, good, I have my good works. I'm, I'm good enough, right? God will accept me the way I am. No, it must go farther. Saving faith must go that next step in trusting in, in coming to the end of ourselves and saying, no, I am not good enough. No, I am truly a sinner and I must throw myself at the feet of Christ. And, I, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's to delight in that truth. You know, growing up, I was in youth group, I was told the, uh, the illustration of the chair, right, for faith. And, if, and it goes about 99%, right? We have the chair. For those of you who haven't heard it, you have a chair. And they equate faith with this chair. We have the knowledge of this chair. We know it's a chair. We have a, an assent, an agreement, where this is a chair. And then we have a trust that we need to sit in the chair. But yet, do we delight in the chair? Do we really delight in that? No, but saving faith is a delight. It comes to the cross and delights in its Savior. It comes to the cross knowing that it needs forgiveness, knowing that, that, that we need forgiveness, but it delights in the fact that forgiveness is met. It is not just an intellectual it is not just an intellectual challenge, but it is it is one that involves the heart. Do we have saving faith in Christ in that way? Do we delight? And children, I lay this at your feet. You are incredibly blessed. To be in homes that catechize you and bring you to church and raise you and teach you the things of the Lord. But do you delight in those things? It's one thing to memorize the entire sort of catechism, and it is a whole world of difference to delight in the truths that that catechism teaches. 
In that same way, let us search our own hearts to, to see if we delight in the, in the truth of God. But their faith had an object. And that, that object was God. Paul pointed to this earlier in verse, I think it was verse 3. He, he, he stacked up the work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in Christ. Well, it is the same thing, that it is not just enough to have a blind faith. True saving faith in Christ has an object in God. That these Thessalonians, these Gentiles, turn from their idols. They turn from idols of wood and stone and, and idols of the heart to the living and true God. Their faith did not rest in some whim or wish, but it was rooted in the promises of God. But secondly, their faith did not just rest with themselves. Their faith sounded forth. In verse 8 we read, that the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. And here is another, another great example of true faith. Faith does not, true saving faith in Christ does not keep to itself. But because of the delight and the joy that it has found in Christ, it desires to go forth. It desires that other people may know of the joy that they have found, the forgiveness in Christ that they have found. This, this word for sounding forth is like that of a trumpet, a trumpet blast throughout all the surrounding towns and counties that the, the Thessalonians were a part of. Their faith was not just individual, but they desired that their faith might become something real to those around them. And in imitating Christ, I think their sounding forth of the faith came in three things. First, their personal evangelism, their witness. Second, their lifestyle, right? Their, their lifestyle, their indirect evangelism. And third, what one commentator called holy gossip, the, the chatter of, of, this new group, of this group of people, the word spreading around. And these are all a part of, in verse 6, when Paul talks about they became imitators of me. When Paul came into Thessalonica, what was he doing? He was preaching. He was mingling with the people. And so when Paul's saying he became imitators of me, after Paul left, they must have been doing the exact same thing. They were still proclaiming the gospel. They were still, the, the transformation of their life was seen by those around them. They would go out into the street corners and preach. They would, they would, in their homes, now begin, they would have a complete change of how they ordered their lives. And I think it's especially interesting that, that Thessalonica, as we, we read earlier, or we mentioned earlier, was, was a major seaport town. Thessalonica was a, was a hub of commerce in the day. And so, so not only were the people evangelizing on the street and their change of life was, was, was impacting those around them, they would have had opportunity to mingle with people as they, come, as they came and went. Traders and merchants coming into Thessalonica. Maybe these believers were traders and merchants themselves, and so they would have direct contact with these people. But nevertheless, when Paul says that the word has sounded forth to all of you, it's not that these people had had beaten Paul in getting to Corinth or Berea. It's not that they had gone farther than Paul, but the rumors of, of the transformation of life that had taken place in this group of people had gone far out, had gone far away from them, even though it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily intended. And as I was, as I was studying this, I was, I was very convicted by, by, by the neglect of this in my own life. Growing up next in a vacation town, I would always 
justify my, my excuse of not going up to the boardwalk because I'd say to myself, they're just leaving in four days. They're leaving in a week. What good can this be? Yeah. But I think here, Paul slams that. Paul is making a point to say, no, these Thessalonians, their life, the way they conducted themselves, they're, they're intermingling with people that they have may only had one encounter with, made a difference. Because we don't know how God is going to use our individual encounters with people. And I think we, there's no other illustration or a, let, or a better one than that of, of A.W. Tozer's conversion. A.W. Tozer was, was the prominent um, pastor in the Christian Missionary Alliance in the 20th century. And Tozer's conversion story is that he was walking down the street one day as a boy, and across the street was a street preacher. Tozer, not going over to the man, not inquiring more, was convicted of sin as he walked by. And he went home and fell on his face and cried out to God for mercy. That street preacher probably looked at that, that young Tozer and thought, this is just one more person who's walking by me, seemingly to ignore me. But yet God used it. God used the faithfulness of that man for conversion. And I think it's something that we need to think about ourselves. In all of our interactions with in, in people, in the grocery store, at our work, we never know what God, how God might use our faithfulness. But Paul doesn't stop there. He not only commends them for their faith in God, but he commends them for what that faith has done in their life. Verses, if you would look at me in verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul points to the fact that true saving faith, that the report of these Thessalonians turned to God was not something inward, but it crept out to every corner of their life. The first thing that, that Paul lost them for, and Paul celebrates and, and praises God for, is their turning to God from idols. Again, this was a Gentile people. They probably would have been very steeped in idolatry to different gods and goddesses. I think Mount Olympus was within 50 miles, Mount Olympus being the place where the gods were to live within 50 miles of Thessalonica. So these people were very steeped in idolatry. But Paul gives us this, the, the most beautiful in all of Scripture, description of conversion, of turning to God from idols. And this, this was manifested in two ways. First, their reception as missionaries. When Paul and his companions came to Thessalonica, what was the first thing that the Jews did? When they heard the message, they rejected him. They chased him out of town. But Paul commends them and he praises God for the work of the Spirit in their lives. That when the Thessalonians heard the preaching of the gospel, they didn't reject them. That they accepted the message. That they accepted the messengers that Christ had sent. And, and, and we can say that to, for Paul to say that you accepted us is in turn saying you accepted our message. And is in turn saying you accepted the one whom you proclaimed. Christ himself. Jesus said this about, him, about himself when he said that they don't reject, when they reject me, they're rejecting God himself. They're rejecting he who sent me. And so in the same way, Paul is thanking God 
that the Thessalonians did not reject the message, but instead embraced the message of salvation. But secondly, Paul thanks God for their service to him. That as, as the Thessalonians turned from their idols of wood and stone, they turned from serving the idols to serving the one true and living God. And I think Paul makes, he draws a, a very strong line in the sand here. Because while he explicitly calls God the living and true God, he's implicitly saying that all idolatry is dead. All idolatry brings death. He's saying you have turned to the life-giving God. You have turned to the one who can ransom your soul. All those other things that you served before were nothing, but they would lead you to eternal death. In, in essence, he was, he was saying that, that serving the living and true God leads to life, and serving the dead idolatry of the day leads to death. That we become like what we worship. When we worship and we turn to God, and, and we are, we are, when we seek His face, we are set upon that path to everlasting life. But when we are steeped in idolatry, when we, when we turn to the idols of the heart, and we turn to, to, to the dead things of life, we are set on the path leading to eternal destruction. Paul contrasts this. He contrasts the two. Dead idolatry with the living and the true God. And even in this, the lifestyle of these Thessalonian believers show the power of God. If you think, remember back in Judges chapter 6, Gideon is told to chop down the Asherah, right? And he does it at night for fear of men. But nevertheless, he does it. And in the morning, when the men of the town come and they want to kill Gideon for, for chopping down their idol, Gideon's father steps in the way and says, no, if he is a god, let him defend himself. And so, in, 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 and there are many different examples we can look at throughout church history of missionaries going to foreign places and, and chopping down the sacred tree of the town. Or, or desecrating certain religious places and saying, if your gods are real, then let them, let them answer. If, if your gods are truly powerful, let them come down. And let them vindicate their name. So here is but one more example of the, the, for the Thessalonians of, to the surrounding community that they turned to God and nothing happened in the way of, of, of they turned to God and there was no recompense from their dead idolatry. They turned to God from that which is dead to that which is living. And in our own way, how is it that we serve God? In our day, which is nothing less than the Thessalonians, how is it? That we, what does service to God look like for us? I think, in short, it's nothing less than seeking to do that which is pleasing to Him, seeking to obey His commands. When we're in our homes, for husbands and wives, that we that we love each other sacrificially, that we seek to that husbands we we wash our wife with the water of the Word, we seek. We seek to, to uplift her and, and nourish her spiritually and emotionally. Children, how do you serve God? Primarily right now, you serve God by obeying your parents. 
We think about think about Paul in Ephesians five, saying to the saying to the children of that of that church, to listen to your parents because it's pleasing to God, it's honoring to Him, pushing off our own desires for the sake of pleasing our God and Master. Paul does not only commend them for their service of turning from dead idols to the living God, but to wait for His Son from heaven. In verse 10, you read with me. To wait from his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Again, as I was studying this, I was convicted in this part too because Paul has a very robust understanding of the second nation, or the second coming of Christ. For Paul and for the Thessalonians, it was not some far off date that they were just that they knew was coming, but they didn't live in light of it. It wasn't something that they, they knew intellectually, but didn't impact their lives. No, for, the, for, for Paul, the second coming of Christ was the completion of their salvation. It was the vindication. It was, it was the seeing with their own eyes their Savior and anticipating His coming. How often do you and I anticipate the coming of Christ? Do we look forward to that day when we will see our Savior face to face? And if we anticipate it, how much more should we live in light of it? I think Paul uses the coming of Christ to spur on the believers. Because Paul says, we do not know the day or the hour. Jesus himself says, we do not know the day or the hour. No man does. Even the Apostle Paul. But yet, how much more is that imperative for you and me to live like he could return in five minutes? Like he could return tomorrow? Jonathan Edwards, in his resolutions, stated that he would never do anything that he would not do within the last hour of his life. He would look upon his, his present work and he would say, if I had one hour to live, would I be doing this? He essentially tried to live his life backwards, but he was so intent on making every minute of his life count. He didn't want to waste any portion of it. So he made this resolution to keep before his eyes that he might live in anticipation of Christ. That he would live in the, in, the, in the joy of knowing that one day my master will come for me. But what will he find me doing? Will he find me employed in his work? Will he find, or will he find me doing less than the best portion that I could be doing? Paul points them to the coming of Christ, but he clarifies to give them, to give them, to bolster their understanding of Christ's coming. To wait for His Son from heaven, who He raised from the dead. Here we have the two great vindication of who Jesus is, His deity, right? Jesus, the one who God raised from the dead, because sin and death could not hold Him. He was sinless, so the grave could not hold Him down. And upon His resurrection, He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning. Paul uses this as a vindication for the deity of Christ, but also he points to who he is as the one who delivers us from the coming wrath. That our Savior is, is, is coming not only to, is not just to ransom us, to bring us home to himself, to bring us into the, the kingdom of God, the home of his heavenly Father, but he reminds them of what that Savior has done for them. The Thessalonians had a reputation for their steadfast faith in God, even in the midst of affliction. 
and their transformed life again in the midst of affliction. And you and I are called to that same thing today. You and I are called to live a life of faith, to live a life that is transformed by the power of the Spirit. And yes, it is a very high standard, because when we think of these things, we think of the nature of faith. We think of how our own faith is sounding forth in our own lives. We think of what our life might look like to the outside world, to our neighbors, to our co-workers. We think of how we are to wait expectantly for Christ. The bar is set very high. But the great encouragement is this, that the Christian, the believer in Christ, can imitate him because he has his spirit dwelling inside him. That we can live like Christ because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That in the flesh, when we try to do things upon our own strength, we will fail. But as we cry out to God, as we wake up in the morning and we come down upon our knees saying, Lord, I cannot get through this day without you. I cannot accomplish the task I'm given without the strength of your Holy Spirit. As we go through our day, intermittently praying to God, Lord, strengthen me for this task. Help me in this endeavor. May I be Christ-like in my work as, I, as, as we raise our children, as we interact with our neighbors. And we end our day upon our knees again, thanking God for the strength that He did, has given us for that day. Praying that He would give us sweet sleep to get up and do it again tomorrow as we wait for Christ. So as we go into our week, let us think upon the nature of our faith, delighting in our Savior. The sounding forth of our faith into every sphere of our life. And living a transformed life of great anticipation and hope in the coming of our Lord that we might please Him in everything that we do. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.